Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Harvard University has tremendous global influence over the pursuit of research and relations with indigenous people. Kelly Mosteller is in her first year directing Harvard's Native American program, and she has designs to improve how the nation's first higher education institution engages Native students and Native academic pursuits. We'll hear from Mosteller about the difference Harvard can make, coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. Today, we're featuring stories from our KMBA news desk. In the 1970s, in Cook Inlet in the Anchorage area, thousands of beluga whales could be seen. So many whales that you could feasibly walk across their backs without falling into the water. That's according to Mandy Magura, an author of a map studying the challenges Cook Inlet whales face today. Four decades later, Magura says you'd be lucky to see seven whales at a time. The population stands at around 280 as of 2018, according to the Marine Mammal Commission. We've lost over a thousand belugas from this population. Um, that, that's a huge, significant loss. Magura is the author of the project, which is focusing on pinpointing the reasons why this might be happening to the belugas. According to Magura, the population decline is due to several factors that can be categorized as point source pollution and non-point source pollution. Point source polluters have a permit and pollution comes from a known source. That would be things such as um, wastewater treatment facilities, uh, stormwater drains, seafood discharges. Non-point source polluters don't have a single point of the entrance like point source polluters. So examples of that would be uh, runoff from roads or on the airport, you know, when it rains or snow melts, that all just kind of runs in. To the inlet. These threats are building up for the whales, causing issues like food insecurity, immune compromisation, and noise distractions that serve as a death by a thousand cuts. According to Magura, over long-term exposure, these factors will continue to decrease the population we see today. Catching up with U.S. Representative Mary Peltola, who was sworn into office in January. She's the first ever Alaska Native person to represent Alaska in Congress. Peltola was recently at the U.S. Capitol for the annual Alaska Week. She says she was able to discuss many important matters, including key Alaska Federation of Natives issues. We talked about a lot of high-level things. AFN is so good at helping frame our priorities as the largest statewide Native political organization. They're really good at looking at things, kind of zooming out, looking at things not beyond just details and beyond just regional issues. They're really looking at Alaska in terms of our place globally. Peltola is addressing a number of priorities for her home state, such as fishing, Medicare and Medicaid, and marginalized groups in Alaska. I think we all need to be thinking about veterans thinking about disabled people, thinking about elders, really thinking about our young people. We need to be looking for solutions on our homeless and unhoused families. 40% of the people in Alaska who do not have a house are children, and that is through no fault of their own. But as an elected person, it really does impact everybody, this 
homelessness and houselessness issue. And I want to be one of the people at the table coming up with solutions. So those are some of the things that I consider priorities that I want to work hard on. Peltola's next goal is to continue prioritizing protecting fish and reducing bycatch. And we'll be tracking National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration expected revisions to some of national standards, which govern allocation, fishery-dependent community participation, and bycatch. Alaska Native artist Crystal Worrell's work will soon be on a postage stamp. The U.S. Postal Service is officially launching a set of four stamps called The Art of the Skateboard. Worrell's illustration showcases the Northwest Coast Formline style of design, which she is known for. Worrell, whose Clinket and Athabaskan used blue and indigo colors to depict a salmon, which she says is important to Alaska Natives because it's fed them for thousands of years. Worrell is not the first Alaska Native to have her art featured on a stamp. Her brother Rico designed a raven stamp for the post office two years ago. The two are business partners who sell their designs on t-shirts, jewelry, playing cards, and even snowboards. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Support from AmeriCorps VISTA, whose members serve to alleviate poverty while earning money for college and gaining professional skills. Rewarding service opportunities can be found at A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce in Lewiston, Idaho. Harvard University is among the world's most prestigious academic institutions. It also has a checkered history regarding its dealings with indigenous people and issues. Kelly Mosteller is in her first year as Harvard's Native American Program Director and is in a position to steer the university's direction concerning indigenous people and can provide guidance on reconciling its past. Before coming to Harvard, Mosteller spent nearly 12 years working as a citizen Potawatomi Nation's Tribal Historic Preservation Officer and directing the tribe's Cultural Heritage Center. We'll speak with Kelly Mosteller today about all facets of her work. She joins us as part of our regular Native in the Spotlight feature. Of course, we look forward to hearing from our listeners as well. Do you have any thoughts on the intersection of Native Americans and Harvard University? How about other Ivy League institutions and their track records concerning Native peoples? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Cambridge, Massachusetts is Kelly Mosteller. She is the Executive Director of the Harvard University Native American Program. She is Citizen Potawatomi. Kelly, welcome back to Native America Calling, and congratulations on your new position. Thank you. It is wonderful to be back with you, and I have really enjoyed my first few months here at Harvard, and I can't wait to talk about it. Well, I was going to ask you, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary, and it sounds like you're enjoying Harvard so far. 
I am. It has been a wonderful welcome. I have really made connections with some fabulous students and faculty and alumni, and I have greatly enjoyed moving to uh, the Northeast from Oklahoma. It's, it's been a, a change, but it's, it's also been wonderful. I'll bet it has, yeah. Well, Kelly, give us some background on Harvard's native uh, student population. How many students are currently enrolled? We have just over 300 self-identified students enrolled. Of those 300, HUNAP has pretty regular engagement with around 140 of them, and that's split about 70 undergraduate and 70 graduate students. So these are students who come to our events. We know what they're studying. They engage with us. You know, we know the courses they're taking. So we have a pretty um, really robust student population that we engage with on a regular basis. And a wide range of tribal nations represented? Oh, absolutely. Um, I believe we have over 100 tribal nations represented from those students. And what efforts does Harvard make to recruit and retain Indigenous students? That's absolutely something that is critical for HUNAP. You know, when HUNAP was created, you know, in some form, it has been around for over 50 years. At first, the American Indian Program, and then it became HUNAP proper in the 90s. And the focus has always been on recruitment and retention because, you know, Harvard was founded in the Charter of 1650. One of the commitments that the university made was that it would be here for the education of Indian and English youth. And they enrolled a few Wampanoag students in the 1650s, and then they had almost no enrollment for the next, you know, 300 years. Uh, So when this program came about, making sure that Harvard was honoring that promise that was made in their charter was something that was really critical for us. So We work on doing outreach through programs like College Horizons and making connections with organizations like ACES that really help create that school-to-college pipeline for students. Um, We work with um, tribal colleges and tribal nations to make sure that their students who are really thinking about pursuing an Ivy League education know about Harvard and what we have to offer. Um, And when they're here, once to retain students, we work closely with them and their academic advisors and their resident advisors to make sure that once they get here, they feel like they have an advocate group behind them, that they, we've become their home away from home. Um, you know, this is a, moving to Cambridge is a big step for a lot of our students, but also, you know, being away from community and their support group can be a real challenge. So that's something that HUNAP takes very seriously is that, you know, once these kids are here, they're we see them as, you know, our family, and we, we really want to make sure that they feel supported and that they can do their best in this institution. Mm-hmm. Now, Kelly, you spent over a decade working for your tribe as a tribal historic preservation officer, the Heritage Center. What prompted you to make this move to Harvard? Well, you know, I uh, went to CPN. I went home from graduate school to take over the Cultural Heritage Center, and so I came straight out of 13 years of college straight, you know, to working for my tribal community. And I learned so much on the job there, you know, at everything from the museum sciences side to the tribal historic preservation work and section 106 consultations and NAGPRA and all of those things that are, are entailed with working at preserving culture for your tribal community. And 12 years in, I sort of had that thought of, I absolutely love what I'm doing. I love working for my tribe, but also if I'm going to make a a leap, you know, to branch out into maybe 
grow my um, experience and my network, this is probably a good time to do it. You know, it was post, you know, the, the pandemic really sort of slowed down a lot of the, the projects that I was working on and put a few things, you know, on the back burner because we, we couldn't be open to the public for so long. So it really was a good time to sort of look at what was out there and and just see what was available. And when the position for this, this um, job at Harvard came across my desk, I thought, well, let's just see what happens. And here I am. <laughs> well, tell us um, day to day, what are some of your responsibilities and duties as the executive director of the Native program there at Harvard? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's right now we are doing a lot of programming. Spring is a very busy semester for us. So we are, in fact, um, next week we're bringing Tommy Orange onto campus as our annual lecturer. And, you know, we, of course, are going to have the public lecture where he talks about his book, They're There, and he talks about his work as an artist and as an author and as a, a creative person in Native spaces. But we also have him meeting with our students, you know, so that they can have that one-on-one -on -one time with someone that they see as, you know, is inspiring and as a mentor for them. So bringing, you know, Native scholars and artists onto campus to, to build that network for our students is something that's really important for us. We're doing a lot of other programming as well. Um, this week we have Regis Pecos, who, you know, is a fantastic mm. advocate for um, Natives in higher education. And we're bringing him in, and he's doing a series of meetings. But we're also having some one-on-one -on -one time so that he can talk to students about, you know, what it's like being a Native person in an Ivy League institution. He's, he's navigated these spaces before and, you know, making sure that, we, we make people available to our students so that they know that it can be hard to be away from home. It can be hard to be in these spaces that are, have a, a very long history of being very predominantly non-Native and having histories that are quite honestly hostile to Natives. Um, so, you know, just making sure that we are creating spaces where our students can thrive academically, but also feel supported as individuals and as people and as Native young people out here trying to do their best. So, you know, that kind of programming is something we, we focus on a lot. We also are working with our larger partners on campus right now. Um, in the fall, we are going to be hosting a very large conference exploring Harvard's legacy of Indigenous enslavement and indenture and colonization. And that means, you know, partnering with various institutions on campus, partnering with the regional tribal community here in New England and Massachusetts specifically to really look deeply at Harvard's past, you know, recent past, but also long historical past that, right. you know, used natives as, as to exploit, you know, to, to, to gain the land from Native communities, to use Native students as a, as a tool to, to raise money to keep the, the university functioning and running. And um, there's, there's a long and complicated past. And so, you know, spending the time to, to create this, the, the proper balance of voices that will be at this conference is something that, you know, we're being very intentional about right now. Um, so those are some of the things that I'm doing just immediately um, in, in, in the current uh, time planning for things this spring and next fall. Well, it's, it's interesting, and you mentioned Harvard's charter way back in 1650 uh, to educate English and, and Native youth, and now stretching a historical legacy nearly 400 years, and uh, it sounds like this 
conference coming up is going to be one strategy for Harvard to reconcile with its past abuses. But what are some other initiatives or ideas you have for how to make Harvard um, more cognizant of that original mission going forward? Yeah, we are a huge advocates of saying, you know, this, the charter is something that we need to make sure that the university understands in all of the capacities that are available to the university and to people that we're trying to bring to the university today. You know, when that charter was written, Harvard was a different institution. Um, and I think the promises that were made in that felt very confined and, and small. It was, you know, we enroll a few students and we've met this promise that we made. But Harvard today, you know, has an endowment and a reach and a legacy and a presence in higher learning that it didn't have at that time. So now we're saying, you know, use use this promise, this legacy that you have for good. You have We at Harvard have the resources and the platform to bring attention to a lot of Native issues. Um, one of those, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about it um, more in the near future, is around NAGPRA. You know, this is something that Harvard has does not have a great history with being compliant with and, and living up to the spirit of the law, if not the letter of the law. And, mm-hmm. you know, now we have the, the platform and the resources, and we're acquiring more and more Native faculty and staff who can say, we need to really show what can happen when you have one of the largest collections of Native human remains in the country, how you can really... Um, redirect that effort to do right by Native communities and and move NAGPRA and and the work that we're doing into the future. All righty. And Kelly, I want to definitely talk more about NAGPRA because with your background as a tribal preservation officer, you've got some great insights with regard to those issues there at Harvard University. But we do have to take a short break. We'll be right back. The Yurok Tribe is taking aggressive and proactive steps to help address the ongoing problem of missing and murdered indigenous people. We'll hear from tribal officials and others about efforts to spark momentum towards solutions. That's all coming up on the next Native America Calling. If you are age 45 years or older, it may be time to talk with a healthcare professional about colon cancer screening. Medicare, Medicaid, and the Marketplace have you covered. For more information, visit healthcare.gov or call 800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're speaking with Kelly Mosteller. She joins us as a Native in the Spotlight. We're finding out about her achievements in academia and with the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. If you have a question or a comment for her, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. And our phone lines are open now. Producers are standing by, so please, the number again, 1-800-996-2848 to speak with Kelly Mosteller. 
Kelly, before break, you were talking uh, about NAGPRA and some of these issues with repatriating remains. And I understand uh, when you were working with your tribe, uh, you were involved in repatriating some remains from institutions like Harvard. And I mean, did you have any doubts or any concerns about, you know, making a shift to the university and now being part of that legacy? Absolutely. Um, this is something I was I was very familiar with Harvard and other institutions um, being on the other side of the table for for you know more than a decade. I had been in consultations with universities, I, and I had seen really the you know the overall um, relationship with tribal communities, and a lot of universities had really started to change. Even in the ten to twelve years that I was doing the work, you know there was some resistance. Back in 2010, 2011, when I started, that from universities that you just by the time I left in, in 2022, that you just didn't see anymore. You know, I think a, a, a generation of archaeologists and anthropologists who were coming into positions of authority at universities had been trained with NAGPRA being the, the you know the law of the land and understood NAGPRA and just so many attitudes. Even over that 10 years, changed. But when I did my interview with Harvard. You know, this was one of the first questions I asked. It was, you all have a terrible track record. Um, you know this. Um, what What are you doing to change that now? And to their credit, no one at Harvard argued with me about the past. And, you know, they have recently hired a new executive director over the Peabody Museum. Um, they brought in Phil Deloria as a professor, but also to be the chair of the NAGPRA Advisory Committee. And, you know, even as a interview, you know, in my interview, they said, you know, we wouldn't, we would like to ask if you take the position and if you're hired that you be on the NAGPRA Advisory Board. So my past experience doing that work for a tribal community was actually an asset that they they saw that I could bring to the table those experiences and, you know, my expertise, but also what it felt like to be, you know, a person who's leaving home and coming to one of these universities and that feeling the night before when you're preparing yourself emotionally and mentally and spiritually to go in and argue for your ancestors and to be in that space where your ancestors are, you know, it's, it's, it's very heavy work. Um, it's emotionally and spiritually taxing. And, um, you know, I, I appreciated that everyone from the interview process through my hire and my work now working with um, the university on NAGPRA appreciates that. And there's just such a, an acceptance that Harvard's past doesn't have to be its future and really embracing the spirit of NAGPRA and not just the letter of NAGPRA. Um, it has been a very positive experience. We have a lot of work to do um, you know, when you have one of the largest collections, even when you are doing repatriations, you still just by the numbers have so much more work to do. But, you know, I'm very happy to say that in our advisory meetings and when, you know, we talk about NAGPRA, there's just there's no pushback anymore about, you know, why we have to to, to go above and beyond the letter of the law to to really adhere to the spirit of what NAGPRA was uh, passed to create. Um, so that change in attitude that I've just seen not only at Harvard but with other universities has, has really made me feel like we're finally, after 30-plus years, you know, 
making real strides in how NAGPRA can be applied to bring our ancestors home. They just, they don't belong in universities. Mm -hmm. And it's encouraging you to hear that because there are still remains and cultural items there on the Harvard campus, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We still have almost 6,000 ancestors. Um, The collection at one point, and I hate using that word collection, but that is how it is referred to, um, was almost 10,000 ancestors. So 4,000 have have gone home, but there's still almost 6,000 here, and they don't belong here. And so it is the work of the the folks that work at the Peabody and those of us on the advisory uh, committee to help make that happen quickly, but also with intention and care and proper consultation and all of those things that that need to be done to make it sure it's done right. Mm -hmm. Well, well, Kelly, what are some hurdles that um, someone in your position has to be ready for and prepare for, you know, in taking on this role there at Harvard, one of the most prestigious universities in the entire world with nearly 400 years of history for it? So in some ways, it must feel just overwhelming. It does. It does. You know, Harvard has a a very long history and a very big legacy. And, you know, I kind of joke to people that, you know, people, when you say Harvard, it has its it, – everyone sort of has their own understanding of it. Everyone's heard of it. Everyone sort of has their own con- conception of how Harvard fits into the, the history of America. And I always joke with people that, you know, Harvard has – its reputation precedes it. But in Native America, you know, in Indian country, it it precedes it not always in the best way, you know. So Mm -hmm. some of the challenges that you have in this position are that there is not a lot of trust for not a lot of Native communities for this university. Um, So whereas a lot of people who do recruitment to Harvard, I don't think they have a lot of hurdles to get over about having parents wanting to send their kids to Harvard. But when you're talking with Native parents – you need to be able to reassure them that there's going to be someone here who can ha- look after their kids. You know, that there is a long and troubled history here at the university, but also there's been decades upon decades now of really great student engagement, and we have fabulous alumni network. And so there's a lot of assuring tribal families and um, tribal governments and education departments that there are people here who understand that they're absolutely, you can send your child to Harvard and they're going to get the best education you can possibly get. But there will also be someone here who's looking after them as a person. And there will also be someone here who understands that sometimes these students are going to have needs that the university is not used to having to provide for other students. They may need a space to do ceremony. They may may need a space to come and get medicines. You know, I, I have a drawer in my office where I have, you know, do you need a shell? Do you need um, SEMA or tobacco? Do you need cedar? Do you have that? That's something that I think a lot of other groups here on campus don't have to think about is that being there to prepare and, and support the whole student academically, personally, but also if, if they need to connect in a spiritual way. And Kelly, you seem like such a good match for this position because you grew up in a small community in Oklahoma and hearing you describe, you know, how you uh, tailor this job to the needs of these Native students is so inspiring. And, and it begs the question, I mean, what can people in a highly intellectually competitive city like Cambridge, you know, just so competitive, so prestigious, 
But what can they learn from people from towns like Comanche, Oklahoma, where you grew up, and other Native communities all across the country? Absolutely. And that's, I think what you're, you're getting at here is a little bit of that, sometimes you feel imposter syndrome. You know, I graduated from a high school of, with 86 people. My hometown has, you know, one stoplight and less than 2,000 people. And I never, ever imagined that I would be at an institution like Harvard or that I would be given to platforms that I have, uh, you know, been able to, to take advantage of. But if you're just, if you do your best and learn what you need to learn to do to be an expert and to be an advocate for the, the causes that you care about, you are the expert. You know, I, I, while I have a PhD, I did not get a PhD in what I'm doing now. I, you know, I'm a trained historian. What, what the, the, what I'm drawing on for the work that I do now is. Yes, a little bit of my education, but it's also being in my community. It's also knowing the needs of my own people, knowing the needs of young people, knowing what it's like to go off to college and be scared to death. You know, I I went to OSU for undergrad, which was, was fairly safe and, and comfortable for me because a lot of my family have gone to OSU. But then when I went off to graduate school at UT, I had, you know, I, I didn't have family who had been to graduate school. My sister, you know, was going through at the same time I was. And I didn't understand what it meant to enroll in a PhD program, and I, I had just I wasn't really sure what resources to tap into, but it was my own community and going back and having people say, you know, you can do this, you you know what you know, you know your own tribe's history, so don't be afraid to go into these academic spaces and and be the expert. You know your history and you know why you were there and at the table and just be there with in a in a confident way and. You know, it's hard to argue with self-assurance and confidence when, when you know that you bring an expertise to the table that no degree is ever going to be able to give you. Listeners, we are having a fantastic conversation with Kelly Mosteller. She is Harvard's Native American Program Director. If you would like to ask Kelly a question, learn more about her upbringing there in the state of Oklahoma or what she's doing now in Cambridge, Massachusetts, what are you waiting for? Phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848. That number again to call to talk to Kelly, 1-800-996-2848. And Kelly, you mentioned uh, you are a history buff. You studied history in school. And I read that you read 100 books a year. Holy cow, 100 books. <laughs> How do you pull that off? Well, it was much easier when I lived back in Oklahoma because I had an, a 45-minute commute each way. So I would put on some audiobooks, and you know, when you have a lot of time in the car, you can you can knock out quite a few of those with audiobooks. But it's really my way of decompressing, you know. So I have, I, I always have two or three books going at a time. Um, I have a classic books that I read in little snippets on my cell phone. So even when I'm just sort of sitting and you know waiting in line at the post office, I pull up my phone and read a few pages of David Copperfield or something, and then I have an audio book going, and then I have really long, I, I have always a book going that's at least 500 pages, um, and I call them slow but steadies, and it may take me four or five months to read that book, but I do a few pages at a time. So right now I'm reading a biography of Sylvia Plath, and it's fascinating. <laughs> it's, mm. it's a 600-page you know, biography, but it's just sort of it's something that I can step away even for a few minutes and just sort of get engaged in something that's, that doesn't need me to 
solve a problem or fix something, you know, you can just sort of disappear into a story. And it's really, it has been my comfort for a long time, but I think during the pandemic, it really became my escape. And that's when over getting in 2020 is when I started reading over a hundred books a year. So I will see if it keeps up, um, over the next year, I'm doing pretty well right now, um, but I may be a little bit shy of my 100-book mark for uh, 2023. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> well, I'm thoroughly impressed. Like I said, I would I would love to be able to read half that number of books every year. But another thing, Kelly, I find so cool about you with your history background is your original passion was actually European history. And I can totally relate because I, I took a lot of history courses in school and I really like those European history courses. I like the Western Civ courses and, oh, you know, the Renaissance period, the French Enlightenment, Russian Revolution. I just, I was really into that, but there were times I always kind of felt like, geez, you know, I should, why am I so into this history? I should be learning more about native history. But what do you think uh, as native people we can learn from studying more European history and some of those topics I just mentioned? Oh, absolutely. European history was my undergraduate passion. I applied to graduate school to do European history, and a year in, I thought, okay, <laughs> there's a point where you're only going to finish your dissertation, not because of interest, but because there's something else pushing you. And I, I thought, am I going to really, am I going to make this happen if I'm doing European history? And I just didn't think I did. And so I made the transition over to Native American history. Um, but, you know, something that I think is really fabulous, especially about learning European history now, you know, when you, if you're, if you're thinking about a lot of the work that was coming out 30, 40 years ago, where it's sort of that great man history, there can be a lot lost there. But what they're doing in, in European history now is sort of the history of the everyday person, you know, the history of housewives in France and the history of, you know, these very small communities where there, there aren't a lot of records. And it's really helpful for people to learn how historians research and write about that history, because what they're having to do is sort of write in the voids. You know, there's you're writing about people that didn't leave a huge mark uh, on history as far as documentation. You're learning about things through church records and wills and lawsuits and, you know, sort of where the history of everyday people lived in Europe for a very long time. And when you're doing Native American history, you're having to often do the same thing. You're looking at where Natives are being left out of things, or you're reading about you know, government documents to, to, to glean from that the lived experiences. So, you know, it may be a report from an Indian agent to the Secretary of, you know, Indian Affairs, or it may be a petition letter that a tribal member is writing to, you know, the, the President of the United States. You never know. But what you can glean from that is that lived experience. And for so many people who've been marginalized over history, you have to find it in in the missing spaces, in the negative spaces. And I think that's something that people who are interested in history, it, looking at the way European history is done now can be very, very helpful. Certainly. Absolutely. Let's go ahead and take a call. We have time for one call before break. We have Bay, who is listening on WOJB in La Couturier, Wisconsin. Hello, Bay. You're on Native America Calling. Yeah, hey. Bonjour. But anyway, I uh, introduced myself as, uh, you know, my spirit name, 
but and every my clan my bear, bear clan um i never been on the air before but anyway i was wondering like like um what uh what what promises were made to, when harvard took over all those native lands out there i mean where's the where is the paper trail Okay, Bay. thank you so much for that question. And um, Kelly, I think what we're going to do is just go ahead and take a break because uh, it's coming right up. And then I'm going to let you respond to Bay's question. So his question pertains to what types of promises uh, were made to Native peoples way back when Harvard University was chartered right around the time of 1650. And I know we mentioned or you mentioned uh, the mission to educate English and Native youth, but uh, I'm sure there was more to it than just that one statement. So, Kelly, when we come back from break, I'm going to go ahead and let you respond to that question that's coming in from Lacoudre, Wisconsin. We do have to take a short break, however, and anyone else who has a question for Kelly Mostetler, the number one 800 996-2848. Once again, that number is 1-800-996-2848 to speak with Kelly Mosteller and ask her any questions about her role there at Harvard University and some of these issues we're talking about today, as well as uh, her previous work experience there with the Citizen Potawatomi Nation and also in the state of Oklahoma. So uh, give us a call. We'll be right back. This Easter, you can find truly unique gifts and menu items from SweetgrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company, where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There's still plenty of time to join this conversation with Kelly Mosteller. Our number to share your comments and questions on the air is 1-800-996-2848. Again, that number to call 1-800-996-2848. Kelly, before break, we had a call from Lacoudre, Wisconsin, regarding uh, what types of promises uh, were made by Harvard University way back in the 1600s when the school was founded. Um, You mentioned uh, its charter mission, but also... uh, the school was built on native land. What else do we need to understand about that history and any promises that were made? Absolutely. Well, you know, beyond the charter of, of 1650, unfortunately, there weren't a whole lot of promises being made because the land had been taken from in, in various forms by private individuals in a lot of cases um, that so they didn't feel like they had to make promises. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a responsibility, and I think that's something that Harvard is working on right now. Um, this past summer in April of or May of 2022, um, the university released a pretty big report on Harvard's legacy of slavery here on campus. And one of the elements they, that they looked at was their responsibilities and legacy to Native slavery. And, you know, because for in New England for a very long time, enslavement was native enslavement or indenture. And one of the recommendations from that report is that Harvard put part of the endowment that they have committed to this project, which is $100 million, 
into not only hosting this um, conference that we're going to be having in the fall, but really looking at, you know, that, that legacy. So for Harvard and its history with indigenous people, you can't look at enslavement and indenture without looking at first the dispossession of the land. You know, that is part of this relationship and this history. So it's something Harvard is actively working on right now. Um, the conference that we are hosting in the fall is just the beginning. What we hope comes from that conference and the, the conversations that we're going to be having not only with academics and scholars, but also with tribal historic preservation officers and tribal elected officials is we need to deeply look at this university's legacy of dispossession, of, you know, um, violent colonization, uh, the people who prospered from taking lands from indigenous communities, from breaking promises to indigenous communities, because it's not just Harvard, it's also the legacies of those individuals who founded the school, who were students at the school, who are prominent professors and um, other administrators at the school, because people associated with Harvard were people who were very, very prominent in the area in business, in politics and all of the other ways that people that in institutions that were dispossessing dispossessing and marginalizing indigenous peoples. So we really are sort of at the beginning of looking at this very tangled web of Harvard's complicated and, and problematic history with native peoples in the New England region. Kelly, let's pivot now to uh, your work there in Oklahoma, working with your tribe. Now, the Heritage Center that you directed, it's received some accolades from the Association of Tribal Archives and the state of Oklahoma. Tell us more about that. Why is the center so highly praised? Oh, absolutely. Now you're now we're talking about one of my favorite things. Uh, <laughs> so working for my own tribe, um, one of the things that we, when I came home that I knew I would be doing is taking over the museum. Now, the museum is just a, a small portion of what we do at the Heritage Center. We do things um, above and beyond that as well. But the museum exhibits themselves are something that we're really passionate about. So we experienced a pretty tragic flood in 2014 and had to take our museum exhibits down to bare concrete. And that was a, that was an emotionally traumatic experience, um, being having everything um, affected by those um, flood damages. But it also meant that we were able to rebuild with fr you know, a fresh slate. So in 2014, we started to rebuild the museum, and it allowed us to really think about how we wanted to tell our story. Um, you know, we, we were able to do it all at once so we could plan everything out in stages, and we decided to follow a Yes, a chronological, but also a thematic pattern. And we had 10 independent galleries where you would start and with prehistory, Potawatomi prehistory before written records, all the way through Citizen Potawatomi Nation today. And we were able to do so much community engagement. Um, one of my favorite exhibits at the museum is talking about our trail of death, our removal experience. And we were able to create a what we refer to as the wall of moccasins because we wanted to find a way to symbolize what it meant to have to be forced out of your homeland and leave everything and the spaces and the clan animals and the medicines that, that we knew, what anchored us as a people in this place, and walk away from that. And so we asked our tribal members if anybody we, – we were hoping to have – 86 sets of moccasins, 
That is one representing every 10 people who were on our forced removal, which we refer to as the trail of death. I was hoping we would get 60 and that we were, you know, I was thinking, okay, my mom can make us a few sets of moccasins. I know this person's auntie can make some moccasins. You know, we, were, we had a backup plan thinking people wouldn't <laughs> want to engage with this. And when we put the call out for tribal members, we had over 120 people say they wanted to do it. So we had to have a wait list. And so we sent out the moccasin-making supplies. We sent out the kits with leather and sinew and needles and everything. And we asked people to use a family member as their model and make a set of moccasins. It could be a baby. It could be yourself, you know, anything they wanted. And we also asked them to tell us what it meant to them to make these moccasins for the museum. And we got back the most beautiful responses. You know, people were saying, I feel so close to my ancestors now. You know, when I when I made, I used my little grandchild as the model. And when I made that baby mock, thinking about all those little ones who had to be on that trail of death, you know, it was just so personal. And being able to incorporate community engagement like that in, in, in the exhibits and being able to have that kind of connection back to our history that we lived through and here we are still engaging with it in this really important way, you know, for me, that's really what sets Native cultural centers, apart from museums, is that really deep cultural engagement element and people being able to tell their own stories. Mm. Kelly, it must have been hard for you to make that switch. I mean, it sounds like you were just so invested uh, there working for your tribe emotionally and professionally. Oh, absolutely. I cried. I cried <laughs> when I, I cried. <laughs> I think I even cried in my interview with Harvard saying, you know, like this, this will be so hard for me, but... I also was excited to be able to work with Native students from over 100 different tribal communities. And, you know, they, they made the promise that the passion that I had for my community, that that's what they wanted me to bring to Harvard. And, you know, as long as I get to really speak up for and fight for the things that I really care about and to be that advocate and, you know, to be, you know, here in my position here, I am – Kelly, I'm the executive director of Hunat, but I'm also, when I need to be, I'm also an auntie. I'm also an advocate. I'm also, you know, like a big sister. I, I, I want to be able to do for these students and these the communities that are represented here what I was able to do back home. And, you know, that, that's where my heart is. That's, that's what keeps me going each day. Mm, wow. Well, you just do so many uh, exciting projects and you just have so many interests and Kelly, one other topic I, I want to talk about is your work with monarch butterfly restoration. How did that come about? Yes. Okay. So when I was uh, the executive director at the CPN Heritage Center, we have a very, very close partnership with the CPN Eagle Aviary. Uh, the two sisters who run the aviary are two of my dearest friends, and um, I was very, very involved with things that were happening at the aviary. And we actually were reached out to by an organization called the Monarch Project out of the University of Kansas. They have a partnership with the Uchi Butterfly Farm there in Oklahoma to create an organization that we, the acronym is TAPS, but it is Tribal Alliance for Pollinators. And how it came about was that the university, that Monarch Project got a grant to have sort of this, what they refer to as the Monarch Highway, which is that stretch, that natural migration path from 
central Mexico up to where the monarchs go each year up into the Great Lakes region. There's this, this sort of natural migration path that they fly. And Monarch Watch was trying to get different organizations and states and counties to build these patches of milkweed, which are the only plants that monarchs lay their eggs on because it's the only uh, plant that they can eat as, as when they're caterpillars. And they were reaching out to these various institutions, and they really couldn't get a response. And so when they partnered with UG Butterfly Farm, the owner of that uh, organization said, well, why don't you reach out to the tribes? And so Monarch Watch started reaching out to the tribes, and every single person they called said yes. So then they created this alliance of, I believe when I left um, Oklahoma, there were around 13 tribal nations that had partnered with Monarch Watch, where Monarch Watch would bring in every year a few thousand seedlings for the um, milkweed, and we would plant them in our properties where they wouldn't get mowed down, where they wouldn't get sprayed by pesticides, where the monarchs could just have this oasis, these little, um, you know, these little spots where they could stop along the way and have milkweed available to them. And it was such a wonderful project. And by the end, I think we had planted somewhere over 10,000 milkweed plants just on tribal property alone. And we were helping the monarch caterpillars out by bringing them in so that they weren't being, you know, eaten by other insects or getting, you know, affected by the weather. And we would release the monarchs um, each season. You know, it was, it became a project for a lot of our youth. They loved doing the monarch release Every year, you know, we learned how to tell the, the sex of a of a monarch from a male to a female. It was just such a fabulous project. So much buy-in from the community. I can tell you my little nephew, who's who's 13 now, has a deep love of monarchs that he never had when he was younger than that. And his <laughs> his class every year looked forward to him bringing the monarchs in for, for release at, as a school project. And, you know, it was just something that really engaged the community in, in a way. Everybody loves monarchs, but... Monarchs really are sort of the canary in the coal mine. What's happening to them is happening to all of our pollinators. So we thought of them as our little ambassadors, and we did our best to, to protect them and help them um, continue to grow and, and, and increase the population. And for anyone listening who's um, got an interest in learning more about some of these issues with the monarch butterflies, we actually did a show on monarch butterflies and talked about some of the issues that kelly is sharing today that show is in our archives on our website uh it's dated august 12 2022 so you might enjoy taking a listen to that kelly i do want to also talk a little bit about what you do uh on the side when you're not working when you're not reading 100 books a year what are some of your hobbies i understand you're a big fan of the harvard crimson hockey team and also the boston bruins I am. I am for an Okie. It's very odd, but I am a big, big hockey fan. Um, So being in a city like Boston has been fabulous for me. I'm now my heart belongs to the Pittsburgh Penguins, but being here in Boston, (laughs) I have been to many Bruins games thus far. We are having a fabulous season here, and it's it's a lot of fun to go. The colleges around here, you know, from being able to go watch the the. Harvard hockey team and BU is having a great year for so for a hockey fan this is sort of just the place to be it's much easier to get to than it was back home in Oklahoma when I'd have to drive down to Dallas and um, it's, it's something that I really enjoy doing we also my partner and I um, are really making the most of living in uh, New England because unlike at home where you have to drive hours and hours and hours to get to other states now I can I can be in 
five or six other states within a few hours. So we're doing a lot of traveling and getting to know the area. I'm eating my weight in oysters because the seafood up here is fabulous. So I'm really <laughs> making the most of living in New England. And also a lot of historical sites related to colonial history, but also indigenous history all over that area. Are you able to check out some of that stuff as well? Oh, absolutely. I've been down to Martha's Vineyard, where, of course, the Aquina Wampanoag are. I have been able to go to a few different tribal museums. Um, they have really great powwows here in uh, the spring and in the fall, so I'm really looking forward to going up to Aquasazne and in different places to experience the tribal communities in this region. They have such a rich history and really have these histories going back just hundreds of years, you know, that have been really well documented, of course, because you had um, Europeans here very early, but the way these tribal communities have been able to stay together and keep their, their culture alive in such a beautiful, thriving way, I cannot wait to be able to spend my first full summer here getting to, to go around and visit tribal museums and communities. And Kelly, we are going to have to wrap up the show here in about another minute, but I'm thinking maybe there's somebody listening right now, a young person, or maybe a returning student who is thinking, wow, Harvard University, maybe that's the school for me. What should they be thinking about? What do they need to do to get ready to apply or attend a school like Harvard University? Absolutely. So get to know your school counselor. Make sure that you are taking Try to take some, some harder sciences like a, or even some math. So try to, try to take calculus or trig. They, even if they're not something that you are going to be studying, it really does help in the admission process for um, Ivy League schools. Also, make sure that you're taking courses uh, or in, in classwork that helps you to, with your writing so that you can write the personal statements and, and do the the written assignments that are, are a big part of all college education, but especially at the Ivies, um, just polishing up those skill sets. And my biggest piece of advice is don't think that this isn't a place for you. Don't think that you have to be, um, you know, have gone to a private school and have all of this um, outside assistance to help you get here. You're smart enough. Give it a shot. And if you come, I'll be here to help you work through the process. All right. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation. Kelly Mosteller, our Native in the Spotlight. She is Harvard's Native American Program Director. Join us again tomorrow as we get an update on tribal and state efforts to combat the ongoing issue of missing and murdered Indigenous people. I'm Sean Spruce. We'll talk again soon. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. Bonjour. If you are 45 years or older, it may be time to talk with a healthcare professional about colon cancer screening. Medicare, Medicaid, and the Marketplace have you covered. For more information, visit healthcare.gov or call 800-318-2596. 
a message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.